Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett. I'm joined here by a man who taught me maybe the most important lesson in life. And to quote the man, you will make my strength your own. You'll see my life through your eyes and your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father and the father, the son. It's Simon Foster. Wow, you have dug deep into your uh, knowledge of the great man himself, Marlon Brando, uh, Superman. To introduce <laughs> to introduce me, you have gone over the top. Thank you. I'm Simon Foster. Great to be here for this very special episode of Screen Watching. Who will we be referencing today, and why, Dan? Oh, look, this is it. So we're going to talk about Superman. This is a bonus episode. We don't usually do an episode dedicated to one topic like this, but there's a brand new Superman and Lois TV show. Well, it's a show called Superman and Lois about Superman. And Lois, it's, I don't know how they did that. It's all there in the title. But we were talking about the character just off mic, and it was just such an interesting idea of talking about Superman, because he transcends so different types of media, and every element of Superman just like builds on the previous version that came before it. And he's very reflective of things that are happening in the culture at the time. He's just a really fascinating character. So we thought we'd get on the microphone, talk for about half an hour just about Superman. Love or hate Superman, and he's and there's people in both camps, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but he has been central to how the US of A, the good old US of A, has um, developed over the last century, um, or nearly century, I should say. He's uh, a- as synonymous as, as apple pie and baseball and all those things that we associate with uh, the great nation of America, uh, quote unquote, and... We're keen to see just exactly how he's developed over the years and those iconic moments in Superman's history that have affected uh, pop culture specifically and, and at times society in general. Yeah, so I think when people in 2021 think about uh, Superman, you think about him as like a much sort of lesser character, lesser tier character than like your Batman. Like as far as Superman, superheroes go, Batman's really the guy and really dominates a lot of pop culture just generally regardless of medium. The thing is that for the majority of Batman's history, he's always been a popular character, but it's actually been Superman that's really driven a lot of the superhero media really for the first 60-odd years of superheroes in the mainstream pop culture. And it's really been really the last like 30 to 40 years that that's subsided a little bit. So I guess when we're talking about Superman here, and we'll sort of really cover this as we go, it really is the thing that was driving a lot of the sort of youth, fun, entertainment culture for a lot of these early things we're talking about. But he's also interesting in that if you think about the way that America has really dominated the world through its cultural imperialism, Superman's mm-hmm. kind of been at the forefront of that, where he was there in the early movie serials that had been pushed out of the US. He was one of the first sort of major TV series, The Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeve. And you've just got like, this constant sort of push of the American idealism of Superman being wrapped in at the same time as they're pushing this American content out to the world. So he's kind of indelibly linked to the idea of Americana as a result of that. Uh, no, no more so than uh, how Superman came about. He was the creation of, of writer Jerry Siegel and artist Joe Shuster um, and first appeared in the now iconic comic book Action Comics Number 1. Um, which was dated June 1938, published in April of that year. Um, 
he uh, Siegel and Schuster ultimately sold their stake in in uh, Superman and sold the the property that they invented for a hundred and thirty dollars uh, to DC Comics. Uh, that handed over the exclusive rights to all things Superman. In a ju- just to see what a stitch up that was in two thousand and twenty one dollars, that is equivalent to about two and a half grand. Now, when you think of the billion dollar franchise that uh, Superman has become, the billion dollar property. That's um, a pretty good deal for DC and quite a shafting for Mr. Uh, uh, Siegel and Schuster. Well, this is it. So these are two young Jewish kids. Like They were in their early 20s when they sold Superman to the thing. Actually, maybe they've been late teens. I can't quite remember. But both very young guys. And mm. pretty much they weren't the first comic creators to get screwed by comic book publishers because that was just the way the industry worked then and certainly has worked almost entirely since then. The thing with Siegel and Shrewster is that both of them like lived well into like late age, like fairly poor. Like both of them did a fair bit of continual work, often related to the Superman character for like the next twenty or thirty years, writing and drawing comics, and they were part of it. But they were just sort of part of the machine. They weren't really given the credit they were due. And it was only, I think, in the early 80s that there was a push within the industry to try to get these guys the actual credit they deserve. There were court cases involved, and it was only right towards the end that I think Siegel, I'm not sure which one it was, Siegel or Schuster, one of them had passed, but the other one was still alive when actually got a little bit of money out of them. And to this day now, DC, well, Warner Brothers, Warner Media, they do make payments to the estates of both these creators because... It has been considered that they have contributed quite a fair bit to the bottom line of Warner Media. It seems almost redundant to give a brief rundown of the origin story of Superman. I'll do it very quickly, just for <laughs> yeah. those of you out there. I guess you're listening to this podcast, A, if you're a Superman fan and have been for a long time. If you're listening to it for the first time, I think even those that don't know Superman almost know instinctively the origin story of of. of um, the young man who came from the doomed planet of Krypton, um, father, son of Jorel and Lara. They placed their infant son, Kalel was his name originally, into a rocket bound for Earth. He's found by Martha and Jonathan Kent from Smallville, a mid-American town. Uh, they name the boy Clark, raise him as their own, and he starts to exhibit superhuman powers, invulnerability, incredible strength, speed, the ability to leap high distances, tall buildings in a single bound, in fact. Um, and these would all become the hallmarks of his alter ego, Superman, a.k.a. the Man of Steel. Um, it's a very basic premise that's gone down in, in comic book uh, mythology as, as uh, one of the great sort of origin stories. Yeah, basically it's Moses, but more athletic. A little bit, yeah, that's exactly more athletic, yeah, sure. Um, so where do we start with, with Superman in, in pop culture? Where does With the comic books already established, when does he become a Hollywood property? Okay, so as you said, the first Superman comic, Action Comics issue one, that's 1938. By 1940, he was already making a crossover into other media. So the big thing was The Adventures of Superman. This is a radio serial that was running daily, 2,088 episodes in total from 1943 to 51. So long-running radio show. Superman was voiced by an actor named Bud Collier. And just a couple of years later, they decided to make Superman into a series of animated shorts. So it was a company called Fleischer Studios that made the first, I think it was nine of them, and then there were a few more that were made after that. What's interesting here is that you saw... The radio serial was very popular at the time. Just a couple of years later, the serial started, but they took the voice actor from the serial, Bud Collier, and he was the voice of Superman as an animated character. 
So it really is this idea of just the consistency of this character. And I kind of think it's little moves like that, which is what really embedded a lot of the iconography, like just little sound cues and just consistency of character. And I think it's really the casting of that. And as we talk through all the various shows and movies, we're also going to talk through some of those casting links because there really is a lot of through... Uh, a through line through all these productions with a lot of this early cast. Around that time, as the radio serial was booming, the comic book was going through incredible changes. A guy called Otto Binder, working with artists like Al Placino and with Kurt Swan, they were creating this much larger, larger interver- universe. They were bringing in people like Superman Cousins, Supergirl, uh, villains like Brainiac, um, a, a miniature Kryptonian city called Kandor, and the Legion of Superheroes, which was the um, a teenage super team from the 30th century. They were all being introduced through the comic books at that time and would, to certain degrees, influence the, the, um, uh, the, the mythology going forward. Yeah, really big, broad ideas. A lot of really silly ideas, but for comic books in the 1950s, books that are meant to be read by, you know, 8 to 12-year-olds, like, it's perfect Are you talking... Are you referring to Crypto the Superdog, Comet the Super Horse? Uh, not so much Lois Lane's sister Lucy. It was also under, we're working with the, the artist Kurt Swan that they introduced the Phantom Zone and also um, Superman's imperfect duplicate, uh, Bizarro, which is very often referenced on uh, a very famous episode of Seinfeld as well. Yeah. Uh, now, Kurt Swan, just interesting to know, if you ever saw any merchandise, so T-shirts or cereal boxes or anything really from the Kurt Swan era of the comic books onwards until pretty much close to his death in the mid-80s, it was always Kurt Swan's Superman head that was used. So it was the consistency of that Superman image that carried through. So Superman always looked the same because it was always the Kurt Swan head. So we've had the animated movie serial uh, produced by Fleischer Studios. Now we move into the, the, the movie serial live action period, 1948, where they introduced Kurt Aline as, as Superman and Lois Lane, who was a character modelled originally on, on founder Siegel's uh, future wife, the lovely Joanne. Um, she was uh, she was the, 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 the sort of model for, for the Lois Lane character. Um, this was a, a fairly popular series as well. Uh, yeah, so again, a movie serial that took place. Uh, 1948, they followed up with a second serial, Atom Man vs. Superman. There was a director who took care of both uh, serials. His name's Thomas Carr. And when they went on to the TV series, Thomas Carr carried over to that. So again, it's that consistency of the look of Superman. So the early episodes, The Adventures of Superman, which launches a few years later in 1952, directed by him. Uh, but between those, though, there was actually a feature film. It only runs for about an hour. It's called Superman vs. the Mole Men. And that's the first appearance of George Reeves taking on the role of Superman. And with that, Noel Neal was the uh, lowest, I believe, in that. But it could be Phyllis Coates who ended up taking over the role when the series actually started. So the TV series, which is really the coming out of Superman as a mass, not just American sensation, but as a global sensation. Because while the radio serial, very popular, that didn't necessarily travel internationally in the way that this TV show did. Because it, it was one of the early black and white adventure shows. And, you know, people just latched onto the Superman character here. So that ran from 52 through 58. George Reeves as Superman. Phyllis Coates in the first season as Lois Lane. She had a conflict with another role and so couldn't continue on in the role. So they brought back Noel Neal from the serials to take over as Lois from season two onwards. So there's about 104 episodes of that over six seasons. Superman, you're wonderful. How did you know we were in trouble? Little Bird told me. Bet you the little bird's name was Clark Kent. <laughs> Could be. He's a fascinating figure in Hollywood history, George Reeves. In the 2006 film Hollywoodland, uh, Ben Affleck 
played Reeves in the, in the final hours of his life and um, the, the uh, investigation that followed. Reeves died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound um, in his home in Benedict Canyon on June 16, 1959. He'd been completely typecast as Superman, couldn't get another gig, and that started to drive the the actor of a little bit crazy as um as you know evidence in his, in his passing um sad story but he flew no pun intended he flew very high in hollywood as as superman there's they seem to pick it in the film and they show it as truth although i've heard it more as an urban legend but i've got it in a film so let's just take it as gospel that it actually took place there's a scene well a real life moment where george reeves was doing a public appearance dressed as superman and a kid turns up with a gun and obviously Superman is seen as nay and vulnerable to bullets. And so George Reeves is in this really concerning situation where a kid's pointing a gun at him, possibly to like the end of George Reeves. It's wow. It's a hair raising story. And you see it, Ben Affleck plays it. And it's just an incredible scene in that film. Yeah, it's a wonderful film. Uh, Adrian Brody and Diane Lane from Memories in the cast as well. Do see Hollywoodland if you get a chance. If you're a Superman fan, you probably already have. Yeah. By the uh, mid to late 60s, there's a uh, a new cartoon series that uh, ran for 68 episodes, The New Adventures of Superman. And once again, the great Bud Collier, who maybe we're not giving enough attention to, he was around for a long time um, as the voice of, of Superman. Uh, but this was a fairly tough time for for Superman, uh, uh, there was a lot of social discontent in America at the time. Anything that was too representative of the good old stars and stripes, and S- Superman was definitely seen as that. He came out of that sort of very nationalistic fervor of the the first half of the century. Um, he, he suffered a little bit in over this period. Yeah, um, so I think the newspaper strip had been cancelled. I think the comic books were in decline to a certain degree. Now, he's about to be reborn with the 1978 Superman movie. But before we get to that, I just want to maybe just point out the fact that we look at some of the icons of Superman as being just gospel that they're there from the beginning. So Lois Lane's in with Superman comics right from the very start. Lex Luthor Mm -hmm. is a very early villain for Superman. You mentioned then the 50s where Otto Binder's in there introducing all these elements. One of the things he created was the Phantom Zone, which is seen in, actually in Superman at the very beginning when they're on Krypton. You see the Superman and uh, Kryptonian supervillains being put into the Phantom Zone. They come back in the second movie. Um, So there are these elements that do carry through to pop culture, but elements that were missing from the comic books, Jimmy Olsen wasn't there originally in the comics. Perry White wasn't there originally. Kryptonite, Superman's, you know, um, biological sort of enemy. Uh, Like, that wasn't around either. These are all things that got introduced through the radio serials. So Perry White was introduced on April 14th, 1940 in an episode of the serial. An episode later, Jimmy Olsen gets introduced and Jimmy Olsen's only there because they needed someone for Superman to talk to. So it's a radio serial, so there's got to be a fair bit of conversation taking place. Sure. So that's why he comes in. And then Kryptonite gets added to the radio serial in 1943. And these elements all get carried back over into the comic books and then back into the TV show and it all carries through. Um, so it's just worth noting that each of these incarnations always brings something additional to Superman. And it's sometimes even little things. The TV series, uh, they needed a police officer who was in it fairly regularly. So Inspector Henderson becomes a character. And then you see Inspector Henderson become a comic book character and he's in the Lois and Clark TV show a few years later. You know, it's these things that actually do carry from version to version. But we have reached 1978, and I'd say that when most of us think back about Superman nowadays, this is the iconic version of Superman. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. The 1978 version starring Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder as, as Clark and Lois. It's my Superman. I was uh, a teenager at the time. Um, cinema was going through this, this huge shift at that point. Um, uh, Jaws and Star Wars had created this blockbuster mentality. Um, and although Superman was... Um, sort of a bit of a faded icon at that stage, he was still a, a really strong property. So when the uh, tagline, you'll believe a man can fly, started to appear in, in trailers and in posters around cinemas in America, um, there was this extraordinary uh, surge of, of um, anticipation for the Superman film. And quite by accident, perhaps in Hollywood terms, it connected in a way that few movies have. Um, it was nominated for three Academy Awards, uh, it won the Oscar for a special achievement in visual effects, went into the Library of Congress National Film Registry in 2017 for its, its lasting impact, um, and it was a blockbuster in every sense of the word. It was written by, and, and the story was conceptualised by Mario Puzo, who had come off his work on The Godfather, he'd written The Godfather book, so um, it had this sense of urgency it had this sense of immensity about it um there's also and it and it touches on uh superman as a as a, as a christian figure um with the line and you mentioned it earlier the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son so not only was it a huge sort of popular culture moment the launch of the 1978 film but also um it, it took on religious uh, sort of epic nature as well so uh it's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary film yeah, now I just want to sort of go back. You did mention Mario Puzo, so he's the gentleman that wrote the book that The Godfather was based off. Mm -hmm. He was hired to be brought on as the writer for this, but that was actually a little bit early in, so I think he created a little bit of the structural idea of the story. But the actual yeah. real writing goes to, I, I think he's uncredited in the movie, but he's certainly credited by everyone else for bringing a lot of the elements of the film that people like about the original Superman film. Uh, Tom Mankiewicz. So this is the yep. son of Herman Mankiewicz, as seen in the movie Mank, uh, the awesome boss collaborator. Uh, but Tom Mankiewicz really is the guy that really made Superman the movie, the film that it is. So he worked hand-in-hand hand with Richard Donner in creating the film. Yeah, I mean, as I sort of mentioned, this is a, a, a period when um, the audience that were watching cinema had turned. Uh, the teenagers were ruling the box office at, at that stage, which of course sort of led into the, the 80s teenage movie boom. Um, and everyone was looking for the new generation defining event movie. Like I say, we just had Jaws, just had Star Wars. Boom, Superman, came, Superman comes along, delivers on the iconography that comes with it. And all of a sudden you've got a film that um, was a blockbuster all around the world. And we haven't really mentioned, and we absolutely should, the extraordinary uh, and the late Christopher Reeve as Superman. He has just burnt the the image of him as Superman uh, into a, a several generations of, of moviegoers. And um, although the the subsequent films weren't uh, quite as, I guess, respectful of the of the Superman legend as as the first one, um, there's no doubting the role that Christopher Reeve played in creating this iconic figure. Yeah, so Superman's entered this interesting period. So it's 1978, and essentially what had happened is because Superman was, and as we sort of talked about, he was seen as a less cool character and people weren't really as Superman interested as they had been 25 years earlier, the Superman rights ended up falling to a pair of Italian producers. So Alexander, and I think the name's pronounced Ilya Salkin. Ilyas, yep. Yeah. Uh, the two of them weren't really interested in having Superman as a character with sort of great integrity. Really, this was going to be a bit of a cheapish film and a bit of a cash grab just to do what they could with just one outing for it. 
The thing mm. is, Richard Donner ended up being hired, and Richard Donner saw a lot of potential in the character and built up the uh, the mythic nature of Superman and really went to town to build this into the you know epic film that we know it to be. They weren't really interested in that. They didn't really care for the way that Richard Donner was interested in spending their money. And despite the fact that he brought in a lot of cash through the box office from the release of that first film, he was fired off the second film halfway through the production of it. So there's mm. actually two versions of Superman 2 around. You can see the original version, which is directed by Richard Lester, who's probably best known for the Beatles film A, Bi- a Big Day Big Day Out. Hard Day's Night. Uh, so he's best known for that. Uh, but there's actually a DVD release, which is Richard Donner going back and assembling as much of his original vision for the film as possible from what had been filmed. Uh, so it's a bit of a hodgepodge of Richard Lester stuff and Richard Donner things. But it is actually a much better movie. And it's worth just keeping in mind that that exists when we get to the end of our conversation. We talk about Justice League because... Oh, okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, see, the thing with, despite the Despite the, the behind-the-scenes turmoil on, on Superman 2 and the firing of directors and... Um, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was a huge hit around the world, um, and it took another three years for the money men to get their act together and their producers to stop bickering. And what came was Superman 3, which was really just a comedic vehicle for Richard Pryor at the time. He agreed to come on board if they bolstered up his part, um, and, and Superman himself became almost a bit player in a, in a fairly substandard Richard Pryor comedy. Um, which is, which and is when actually what the I was going to say, that's actually what the Salkins were after for the first Superman film. So their inspiration yeah. was very much the 1960s Batman and the idea of a camp cool. superhero on screen. So as soon as Richard Donner's out of the picture, that's where we start seeing this decline of Superman come in, as he's been treated mm. more as a joke as opposed to a character that you should really be looking up to. And just before we get too far in, I just wanted to talk about that c- continuity of actors carrying through. So in the same way that we saw uh, the voice actor Bud Collier reprising the role... Uh, Superman the movie, there's this great scene with a teenage Clark Kent running past the train and inside the train is a much younger Lois Lane who's there with her parents and the parents are actually played by Kirk Allen who played Superman in the serials and Noel Neal who played, you know, Lois Lane. Lois Lane, yeah, which speaks of the respect that first film had for the, the history of the character and the, the knowledge of the what it meant to so many generations of people. Um, then we get to 1987, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, one of the worst films, not just of that year, but any year, quite frankly. Anyone <laughs> who's had, a, anyone who's had the, the uh, misfortune of seeing Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, will realise what a, a dire effort it was, uh, what a complete cash grab. And poor old Christopher Reeve at that stage was looking very sheepish in the part, um, clearly not didn't have his heart in it like in the first couple of films. So uh, as, a, as a theatrical property as a franchise superman was was all but dead by 1987 so then the small screen steps in uh yeah so 1988 we've got a superboy tv show this ran for four seasons 100 episodes all up uh this features superboy and his teenage girlfriend lana wang uh going to university for this first time so they go to schuster university named after one of the co-creators the series it's a bit of a turkey uh it's it's not that it's actually a bad show. It's just that it's not a particularly good show. It's very much of the late 80s sort of syndicated television kind of a um, level of quality here. A guy named John Hames Newson plays Superboy in the first season. He gets fired off because the producers, again, the Salkins are the ones running the show here. They don't really care for him and bring, up, bring this guy, Gerard Christopher, for season two. Now, you don't have Lois or Jimmy or any of these characters because it is supposed to be Superbo- Superman as a boy. 
Uh, and you've got Stacey Haydock playing Lana Lang, his girlfriend. The thing to keep in mind with this as well is that Superboy is supposed to be a boy as opposed to a 19-year-old who is effectively a man going to university. But it comes to 1994, uh, just two years after the Superboy show had been cancelled, and you've got Lois and Clark. So this is not a syndicated show just running sort of wherever, but this is a mainstream, prime-time television program. Uh, this is one that everyone remembers with Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher in there. Worth noting, the aforementioned Gerard Christopher, he had put his head like hat in the ring to be cast as Clark Kent in the Lois and Clark TV show, and the casting director was totally on board for it, but when she talks to the producers, they're like, no, 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 he's been Superman before, we can't really do that. So he was the, probably a contender the, to actually be the Dean Kane. The the 90s were uh, particularly good for, for uh, Superman. Um, he was com- There was a resurgence of, of his love for him through the Lois and Clark series. Dean Kane and Terry Hatch were on magazine covers everywhere. Then in the late 90s, 96 to 2000, uh, Tim Daly, who we know from Wings, he was cast in the, uh, as the voice of Superman in Superman the Animated Series. So we're seeing a return to the, the, the comic book thrills of, of Superman in animated form um, and with the sort of more adult uh, plot lines of Lois and Clark and the, the chemistry between Kane and Hatcher on the big screen, um, Superman was surprisingly uh, sort of prevalent through the, the 90s and with the uh, coming on of Smallville in the early 2000s with Tom Welling in the part of, of Superman, um, things are looking up for, for our mate Supes. See, I'd actually suggest that while Lois and Clark made Superman a sexy character again and really brought him back to the prime time where people are enthused, there's actually a thing with Lois and Clark where the first season is a bit of a moonlighting pastiche. And the show really works for that, but then they start trying to amp up the superhero superheroics of it, and the show starts diminishing. In a way, it kind of echoes what you saw with Superman the movie, which is when they have a very strong authorial vision of Superman, the, the character actually works. As soon as they get away from that, the show kind of just falls apart. And then he hits Smallville, which was very much some very deliberate choices they were making. But I would say with that, because it was a show geared towards teenagers, and I don't think they really did a good job of growing the the bones of the show really beyond just talking to a teenage cohort. It did run for, I think, 11 seasons. It was a long-running TV show. Yeah, but I don't think the show really caught on. It didn't really hit the zeitgeist in the way that I think the show needed. And taking Superman off the board for that 10 years, I think has actually probably diminished the character a fair bit in the larger pop culture, where this is the same time period where you've got those Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies that are making a monster at the cinema. Uh, you've got the rise of Iron Man in 2007. So uh, superheroes are becoming a very big pop cultural deal, but Superman is still being relegated to this silly CW show. Hollywood, big screen Hollywood, did try to reinvigorate the Superman legend with Brian Singer's version called Superman Returns in 2006. It was shot in Sydney uh, in bit parts or a whole lot of great Australian actors. It's, I guess it's largely unspoken of today. Um, it has its followers, Brand. And Ralph played the Man of Steel. He was a little bit hollow, a little bit insipid in the lead role. Um, like I say, it does have its followers, uh, but given the the toxicity surrounding the director singer and Lex Luthor in the film played by Kevin Spacey, um, it's not a movie that's that's spoken of. Uh, Warner's had hoped to 
sort of rolled that into a whole series of sequels. I think you could look at the failure of Superman Returns that, that leads directly into Man of Steel. Because I remember all the conversation at the time around Superman Returns was that why do they go back to Lex Luthor as a villain? They should have played around with the Kryptonian supervillains. And it just sort of seemed like they were really after a sort of much more physical presence of Superman on the big screen than what I think Superman Returns was delivering. In a lot of ways, Superman Returns is kind of like this bridge between the Lois and Clark romance to the heavy action, orientated drama of Man of Steel. So when Man of Steel came along, I actually thought Henry Cavill was very well cast yeah. for it. And in a lot of ways, in the same way that I think that Christopher Reeve really embodies Superman, Henry Cavill does as well. Because And George, I think George Reeve as well like fills this nicely. There's a thing where I think the Superman character has to feel incredibly masculine, but at the same time, there needs to be like a real honest, like an earnestness to the character. Mm. And I think those three actors actually really nail it quite nicely. Dean Cain does a great job at Clark Kent, but he doesn't really quite get to the physicality needed for the Superman character. And that's where that probably becomes a depiction of the character that doesn't really quite work. But Cavill, I think, is fantastic. And it's a bit, I guess, disappointing in 2021 as we're seeing Warner Brothers maybe moving away from Henry Cavill as the cinema's Superman at a time where I think he still can embody the character quite nicely. And I'd say Henry Cavill's more popular now than he's ever been at other point in his career. That's very like, true. Now's the time to take, like, capitalise on it. Yeah, we have um, we touched, if in the last episode of Screen Watching, we did a, a fairly deep dive into the four-hour version of uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, which is debuting March 18 um, around the world. Uh, Cavill, I think, it may be his last hurrah, the, this four-hour version as Superman, which would be a great way to send him off uh, if the film gives uh, paints a picture of Superman and his Justice League cohorts uh, with the respect that they deserve. So all our fingers are certainly crossed to that. Just worth keeping in mind with Man of Steel, uh, this is a depiction of Superman that is very much a Zack Snyder film, but it's probably not necessarily seen as the greatest depiction of Superman on the big screen. Lots of traditional Superman fans don't really like the depiction of him there because while, yes, Henry Cavill looks right and he kind of feels right and he's got the mannerisms right, Superman doesn't act really very Superman-like. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around the very end of Man of Steel where he ends up killing one of the Kryptonian supervillains. I don't have a problem with that because every other incarnation where you've got these villains on screen, Superman ends up killing them. At the end of Superman 2, he kills the characters. Like, all three of them get murdered by Superman and Lois, pushing them off a ledge as they're depowered and are nothing less than human at that point. But for some reason, no one really minds that. But what I think it is, is that if you see the Superman character, and this is Superman at his very beginning where he's learning how his powers work and the um, consequences of what happens when you throw a soldier off in a distance. Uh... While that's happening, he doesn't really seem to worry about the collateral damage of anything that he's involved in. And he doesn't act very super in his heroics. Yes, he's punching people real hard, but that's about it. It's the one thing that the Superman Returns film probably did very well, which is thinking there's, there's an iconic scene in Superman Returns where Superman's flying through Metropolis. There's some buildings that are being knocked around right next to him and there's glass falling. Superman turns around in a brief second, uses his heat vision, melts the glass till it's sort of vapor, and then just keeps on going with his fights. And that's the kind of thing that's missing. He's not really worried about what happens to the puny humans who are running around sort of beneath him. It's basically just that collateral damage, whatever. And so when you see Metropolis destroyed at the end of that movie, people have beef with that. Which brings us to Superman and Lois, the new CW series that follows the world's most famous superhero and comic book's most famous journalist, as they deal with all the stress, pressures and complexities that come with being working parents in today's society. 
that doesn't grab me. But Tyler Herklin as Superman and Elizabeth Tullock as Lois does. Um, I'm keen to see where they take this reworking of uh, the the famous romance between Superman and Lois uh, in this new small screen version. What's the buzz, Dan? Have we had any forward word on uh, what we can expect from Superman and Lois? So look, the producers are talking up the idea that inspiration is less the CW shows and more Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of that. Sure. Reviews from the couple of critics that I've come across so far that have seen it, they talk about it being very CW. So I'm... Very nervous going into this one. I've got a very open mind, though, because I like the idea of a grounded, older Superman. Because one of the things that I think is missing in pop culture is Superman and Batman, a lot of these other big guys, I always think are 34 years old. Like, that's the age of them. And then sometimes they de-age them so they're in their, like, mid-20s. And it never really quite feels right. It doesn't feel authentic. Mm. But the idea of Superman and Lois with a very adult Superman and a very adult Lois who are raising teenage kids, to me, that actually speaks up to the idea of Superman who's more a superhero dad than he is the guy that you're having a beer with down at the pub. There has been some talk over the years, and we've certainly touched on it in this podcast, that Superman is arguably the most uncool of the superheroes. There's a... There's a uh, is, there, is that because there's a bit of a goody two-shoes element about his persona, that he's an inflexibly decent human, human being, uh, superhuman being, um, or that, it, that he was born out of the uh, sort of the stars and stripes nationalism of the, the 30s heading into World War II that, that's never quite left him? He certainly disappeared during the, um, uh, the anti-American period of the 60s and 70s. So is he as uncool as some fans would have us believe or is uh has he just sort of kept a a straight and narrow path to his own benefit all these years look superman's absolutely my guy like he's probably my favorite of the superhero characters and as far as sort of literature is concerned like i just kind of love everything about superman i think he's a fantastic character but i look at him as being a very decent person but i think that you're like the way that you view superman very much depends on the era that you grew up in Mm. and how you view the character so you're like you know, about 10, 12 years older than I am. And so you look at the Christopher Reeve version of the character. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas, because I was in my early teenage years when Lois and Clark was about, that kind of becomes one of the versions I look at and very much echoed what was happening in the comics at the time, which is Superman's a contemporary man who isn't necessarily considered a massive square in the way that he has been through a lot of other generational time periods. And he's just like an average guy who is getting along in his life. He's a journalist working for a metropolitan newspaper. What works for me about the character is that I like the Clark Kent character. I like that he's a grounded person who's working with his friends and he's actually got a full life living there. But Superman's just the extra thing that he can do. It's the thing he can't tell his friends about. It's the decent part of him that he needs to protect for himself or his own sort of... um, internal consistency Mm. and i like that as a thing where people have secrets and this is the one thing that he can't tell his friends about but the thing is because he's such a good person the one thing he can't tell his friends about is also him just doing like the best possible thing that one could do in the world i think we've reached the end of our very special episode dedicated entirely to the man of steel himself uh superman um, Superman and Lois premieres February 23 in the US on the new CW on, on the CW and comes to uh, the Foxtel Showcase channel I think Dan uh, next week Superman and Lois I'm pretty sure we get on Thursday this week okay looking forward to it um, Dan Barrett you have taken me on a quite the journey with Superman uh, over this uh, this uh, very special episode of screen watching 
Well, thank you very much for being Jimmy Olsen to my <laughs> uh, Clark Kent. That's exactly what I felt like. Just a quick question, just because we haven't really done this yet. Yeah. Which is your favourite Superman version and why? Uh, Christopher Reeve's 1978 film Superman is the one I've seen many times over. I did just notice they've released a 4K disc, HD disc of the film, and I'll be getting that uh, after this conversation. I've been inspired again. Um, yeah, I don't think anything else comes close to me. I wasn't a, a, a deep comic book guy back in the day, so I don't know of his um, stories in the comics, but uh, the number of times I've seen the, the 78 film um, is in, innumerable. So, yeah, it's Christopher Reeve all the way. Yeah, uh, my favourite version is a 1988 cartoon version of it. Uh, only run for 13 episodes, and it's like the ultimate Superman version because it's him as a contemporary man. Lex Luthor's the businessman, and it's kind of a really fun incarnation of Superman, but no one ever watched it, and it just disappeared. Dan Barrett, always a joy talking to you. Join us later in the week for the next episode of Screen Watching. We hope you've enjoyed this very special episode of Screen Watching dedicated to Superman, the myth and mythology. Um, mate, good to talk to you. Likewise. That uh, you can see through anything. Uh, yes, I can. Oh, well, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And that you're um, totally impervious to pain. Well, so far. What color underwear am I wearing? Hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I embarrassed you, didn't I? Oh no. I did. No, 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 not at all, Miss Lane. It's just that this platter must be made of lead. Uh, yes, it is. So. Oh, you see, I, uh, I sort of have a problem seeing through lead. Oh, that's interesting. Problems and first name. Hmm. Uh, do, uh, do you have a first name? What do you mean, like uh, Ralph or something? No, no, I mean like... Uh, Pink. Huh? Um, sorry, Miss Lane. I didn't mean to embarrass you. <laughs>